Welcome to Be Set Free, the radio outreach of Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado. Be Set Free features the teaching ministry of Pastor Nick Cady. Pastor Nick's desire is to bring the gospel into our lives so we can experience the joy and freedom that can only be found through Jesus. Today's message comes from our series, Revolution, a verse-by-verse study of the book of Acts. Here's Pastor Nick. See the difference of trying to use Jesus. They have no relationship with Jesus. And I wonder how many people there are like that today, right? You, you know of Jesus, but you don't know him. You know of him, but you have no relationship with him. You don't follow him. You know of Jesus like these guys did. They knew that Jesus whom Paul preaches. Maybe some of you know him in similar ways. The Jesus who my mom and dad believe in. The Jesus who the pastor talks about. The Jesus who my spouse believes in. But you have no relationship with him of your own. But see, but like the seven sons of Sceva, even though you have no relationship with Jesus, you still think that he might be useful to you in some ways, right? In the event that you might end up needing some help with something you can't do yourself, maybe he could be useful to you. See, that's where these seven sons of Sceva were at. And that's where many people are at in regard to Jesus. They see Jesus as potentially useful, but that's it. But what happens when you come to really understand the gospel, when you come to understand what Jesus did for you, the message of the cross, what happens when you come to really know and understand it is this, that you no longer view Jesus as useful. You begin to see Jesus as beautiful. You no longer invoke his name because he's useful to you. You begin to invoke his name because he's beautiful to you. You see, when you really understand the gospel, when you really understand the depth of your lostness and the riches of God's love and grace towards you expressed in what he did for you on the cross, then you no longer seek him because he's useful. You begin to seek him because he's beautiful. Uh, I've, uh, I've used this illustration before, and I think it bears repeating. You know, a lot of uh, times pastors will use this phrase, right? We'll say, you can have a personal relationship with God. And we think that that is, you know, something that's very, you know, that's a great sales pitch, right? Like who wouldn't want to have a relationship with God? Everybody's gonna jump on board with this, right? But the thing is this, that a lot of people, I think, in their perception, that offer isn't as attractive as we pastors tend to uh, think that it is, right? Because in, in some people's perception, it, that offer is about as attractive as if you would say to a school child, Hey, what if I told you, you could have a personal relationship with the principal of your school, right? Like, are you, are you excited, right? See, it's just not something they really want. I mean, I mean, yes, they know the principal is there and the principal is an important person and the principal probably does some really important stuff and he's probably really nice and all, but their goal in life is really to just kind of steer clear of the principal and never really end up in his office, right? So they respect the principal, but they're not really looking to have a personal relationship with the principal, right? And I think that's how many people feel about God. Like, hey, I'm good with God. Like, I just try to stay on his good side, try to keep all the rules so I don't get on his bad side. And I just leave it at that, right? Like me and God, as long as we're cool and not, you know, bothering each other, then it's all good. But one day, what if you were to find out that several years ago, before you can even remember, you were deathly ill and you needed several transplants and infusions and a search was done near and far for all possible donors who could do this for you, but none was found because no one could be found who was a perfect match to be a donor for you, to give you what you needed to save your life, except for one, the principal. And he gave two kidneys and a liver and his right arm and half his brain and all of his blood to the point where he died on the operating table. 
but miracle of miracles, he's now alive and he saved your life. Do you think that might change, that knowledge might change your feelings about the principle? Well, of course it would. It would change your entire disposition towards him, the way that you relate to him, the way you think about him. It would all change. You'd smile when you walked past him. You'd begin to watch him and observe him with a curious eye. Who is this person who would do such an incredible thing to save me? Well, I've never done anything for him. You'd want to get to know him. And in the meantime, guess what? You would trust him, wouldn't you? You'd inherently trust him because clearly he has proven that he cares about you. And so he must have your best interest in mind. See, when you really understand the gospel, when the gospel becomes personal to you, then you no longer view God primarily as useful, but you begin to see God as beautiful. It's when you see how much he loved you that you grow in love for him. Do you want to grow in love for God? Do you want that part of your life to increase? you want to love him more? Then look to the cross. See how utterly lost you were apart from him. Behold the love of God for you expressed in this ultimate action, dying on your behalf, bearing your sin in your place. Jesus, the divine son who left the comfort and security, the glory, the peace of heaven in order to be attacked, in order to be disgraced, in order to be beaten and nailed to a tree, but even more than all those physical things, to have divine judgment thrust upon him. And he did it for you. Do you want to grow in your love for God? Then look to the cross. And see the gospel and let it become personal to you. What the seven sons of Sceva found out was that there was no spiritual power available to them in the name of Jesus apart from a relationship with Jesus. And the same is true for you and me today. If for you Jesus is only the Jesus who my spouse believes in or the Jesus who my parents know and believe in, well then like the seven sons of Sceva, you will not benefit from him. Check out what happened as a result of these things, starting in verse 17. It says, This became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. And many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them, and it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. These extraordinary miracles, they showed the people of Ephesus in that magic-oriented city that the Jesus whom Paul preached, that he had real spiritual power, he had power over both the physical world and the spiritual world, and that it's not just enough to know of him. You need to put your faith in him in order for his power to be effective in your life. And many people in Ephesus turned to Jesus and they embraced the gospel. And as a sign of true conversion... Because I'll tell you this, real repentance is always accompanied by action. And as a sign of genuine conversion, they confess their sins and they renounce their former ways. And anything they had that had anything to do with magic or occultism, they burned it regardless of how much value it had. They didn't sell it. They didn't want other people to have those things. They wanted them destroyed. And it says that the value of those things was 50,000 pieces of silver. Now there are different estimates uh, as to how much that is in our uh, you know, current equivalent. Uh, but it ranges from $1 million on the low end to $6, 7000000 million on the high end. This is millions of dollars of stuff. These sorcery books were expensive. That's a lot of money. And you might wonder, how could they afford to lose that much money? 
Well, I say, how could they not afford to do that? How could they not? I mean, these are things which had kept them in bondage spiritually to superstition and demonic practices. And now they see the very real presence of evil in the things that they used to do, and they want them out of their lives completely. They want them to be gone, and they don't want other people to be led astray by them either. They said these things need to be destroyed. I'll tell you, real repentance is always accompanied by action. See, it's one thing to say, I'm sorry, I'm not gonna do it anymore, but see, an action is accompanying it. That's the sign of real repentance. And those actions often include getting rid of any vestiges of the former way of life that you're repenting of. It might be books, it might be computer files, it might be substances, it might be phone numbers. See, anything that might tempt you later on to come back to those things which God has set you free from and brought you out of. The Ephesians were wise in this regard. They destroyed these things completely so that neither they nor anyone else would ever use them again. And no one ordered them to do this. This wasn't like a church-sanctioned book burning, right? This was people voluntarily coming forward and saying, these things have been a disaster in my life and I want to be rid of them and I don't want anybody else's life to be ruined by them either. I want to be done with them. See, a great revival was taking place there in Ephesus. God was doing a great work of setting people free and giving them new life. And that's pretty great, right? But that's not the end of the story. See, not only was there a revival, but there was also opposition. And notice what happened as a result. We read this next section, and this brings us to our third point. Why so angry? Verse 23. About that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades. And he said, men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger, not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing and that she may be disposed or deposed of her magnificence, she whom all of Asia and the world worship. And when they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together into the theater. That's the theater that we saw a picture of just a, a few minutes ago. Dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, these are political leaders in the area, who were friends of his, Paul's, they sent to him and they were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours they cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. You've been listening to a message by Pastor Nick Cady of Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado. We'll get back to the remainder of this message in a moment. We are open for in-person worship on Sunday mornings with services at 8, 9.30, and 11 a.m. Come grow with us on Sunday mornings, online or in person at 8, 9.30, and 11 a.m. Now, back to Pastor Nick with the remainder of today's message. So the fact that many people in Ephesus were turning to Jesus has had a profound impact on the local economy. And that led to a riot started by a silversmith named Demetrius. Demetrius was a maker of 
little idols that people would buy and they would take home to be part of their personal shrines. And there was a whole economy in Ephesus built around the worship of Artemis. But now the livelihood of these artisans is being threatened because so many people in Ephesus are renouncing paganism and putting their faith in Jesus. And here's Paul, and he's preaching that gods made with human hands are no gods at all. And so less and less people are uh, coming to visit the temple, which means less and less money for the artisans who are selling uh, idols and shrines. But see, it wasn't just a financial thing. Many of the people in Ephesus were upset because Christianity represented a threat to their way of life, a threat particularly to their idols. And this mob comes together in the very theater that, we, uh, that the archaeologists discovered there in Ephesus, seats 25,000 people, because they felt that their God was being threatened. Their idol that they worshipped as God was being threatened, and that is what made them react so extremely. You know, they're angry, they're shouting, they're ready to kill somebody. Now, this is an interesting thing that Paul writes to the Colossians. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, he says this very interesting thing. Check it out. He says, put to death covetousness within you because it is idolatry. Now, think about this. Who's he writing this to? He's saying this is idolatry. Covetousness is idolatry. Who's he writing it to? If he's writing it to the Colossian Christians. These are not people who go to pagan temples. These are not people who bow down to idols anymore. They've come out of that. They've renounced that. But yet Paul tells them that covetousness in their hearts is a form of idolatry. Now what does that tell us? It tells us something very profound and important, and that's this. Paul's telling them that idolatry is not just bowing down to a statue. Idolatry is not just worshiping a pagan god or goddess. Even covetousness in your heart, which is an unseen thing, it's, an, it's not an action that you do, it's a feeling inside your heart. That is a form of idolatry. So therefore, what is idolatry? Idolatry is worshiping something, anything else besides God, putting something or anything in the place of God, the place in your life and in your heart, which is only reserved for God. That's idolatry. An idol is anything that you look to to give you the things which only God can give you. So you may believe in God, you may affirm Christian doctrine, you may come to church regularly, you may read the Bible at home, but functionally in your life, whatever it is that you look to to be the source of your identity, your hope, and meaning in life, functionally, that is your God. See, idolatry is when we take good things and we make them ultimate things. See, idolatry isn't, isn't usually regarding bad things. Idolatry is usually regarding good things that we take and we make them the ultimate thing in our hearts and in our lives. The thing that you hope in. The thing that you live for. The thing that is functionally your savior. You look to it for salvation. You say the language of idolatry so that you can recognize it in yourself is when you say, if I only had that that, if I only had that, then everything would be right. Then I would be okay. If only I had that, then my life would have value and purpose and meaning. Then I'd be happy if I had that. On the other hand, it goes the same way, the other way. If I ever lose that thing that I have, then I will be truly lost and there will be no purpose to live. There will be no reason to go on. 
when you go back in history and you look at the book of Acts, here's what we see, and, and not just the book of Acts, throughout the Old Testament as well. You see that in these pagan cultures, they had a God and goddess on every corner, right? They had a God for everything, right? They had a God that represented different things. Everything had a God behind it that they, they worshipped, that they looked to and hoped in and lived for, which gave them identity, hope, and meaning, right? There was a God for everything. There was a God of war. There was a God of uh, prosperity. There was a God of fertility. There was a God of romantic love. There was a God of power and a God of control, a God of work and a God of recreation. There was a God of agriculture and there was a God of finances. There was a God of arts and a God of music. And you say, wow, those are some very superstitious people. No, don't you see? Don't you see that they understood something which many people in our day fail to understand? They were overt about something which we are covert about. They acknowledge something which we do without even recognizing it. That any relationship, any activity, any pursuit in this world can be something that we worship and therefore treat as our God. Looking to that thing to give us what only God can give us. Identity, hope, meaning, purpose, and salvation. See, there are, there are some things that are easy litmus tests, by the way. There are some litmus tests to help reveal what those things are in our lives that we functionally worship, the idols in our lives. One of the litmus tests is this, by considering what it is that you are willing to sacrifice for. I read something this week, and it said that New York, the God of New York City is money, and the reason you know that is because every year, hundreds of thousands of children are sacrificed on the altar of success and money in New York City, right? In other words, these people are sacrificing the best interest of their children for something they want more. Do you see what I'm saying? That's when you know that something has become your master. When everything else, even good things, have to be ditched, have to be set aside because I've got to get that. Because if I had that, then nothing else would matter. Then I would, I would be okay. Then I would have everything that my heart desires, everything that I'm looking for. Then I would have hope and I would have identity and I would have meaning in life. See, another test, though, that helps reveal what the idols are in our hearts is this, your uncontrolled emotions. Timothy Keller, in his book on this subject, which is called Counterfeit Gods, it's an excellent book. It's a small book with big letters. I would recommend that you read it. But in his book on this subject, he says this. He says, Pull up your uncontrolled emotions by the roots and you'll find your idols clinging to them. So where do you find your most uncontrolled emotions surfacing in your life? When do you get irrationally, unexplainably upset about something you shouldn't get that upset over that thing, right? Like what are the things that cause you to overreact? Pull up your uncontrolled emotions by the roots and you'll find your idols clinging to them. Whatever your idol is, when it's threatened, when you're afraid that you might lose it, which is what happened here in Acts chapter 19, isn't it? They were afraid that they were going to lose this. Then you go on the defensive. Then you're ready to fight because you want to protect your idol because if you lose that thing, you can't afford to lose that thing. You'll lose the thing which you're looking for, looking to, to give you meaning in life, your hope, your, your identity, your salvation. You can't afford to lose that thing because it has become the ultimate thing in your life. And so you're willing to fight to defend it. You're willing to fight. You get defensive like these people. You shout, great is my Artemis. Great is my idol. Stop threatening it. Back off. See, the reason these people were so upset is because their idol was being threatened. Because here's Paul and he's proclaiming, gods made with your own hands are not gods at all. 
They have no power to give you the things which you're looking to them to give you. These things that you're looking to the idols to give you, they can only be found in the one true God through Jesus Christ. In other words, you're looking for good things, but you're looking for them in the wrong places. Ultimately, you will be disappointed unless you forsake the empty idols and you turn to the living God and you put your eyes and your hope fully upon Jesus Christ who alone is the source of all the things which you seek for those idols to give you. See, it's worth asking yourself, what are the idols in my heart? What are the things which I have been looking to to find the things which, I, which can only be found in God through Christ because, because that's the only place they can be found, right? So, See, these are usually good things. They're things, though, that are good, but we turn them into ultimate things, and we look to them for functional salvation. Oftentimes, you know, money, career, recognition, family, romance, morality, beauty, skill. Every one of those are good things, but they're things which commonly become idols in people's lives, things that they look to, that they hope in, that they find their identity from. Think about Artemis. What did she represent? Artemis represented prosperity. That's what people were worshiping when they worshiped Artemis. They're worshiping, they're looking for prosperity. And man, did they ever worship her. And do you think that Artemis is still worshiped today? Absolutely. I mean, do people today worship prosperity? Do they make pursuing prosperity the ultimate thing in their life, the source of their identity and meaning, their hope in life, which they look to as a functional savior? Absolutely. And when that was threatened in our story, chaos erupted. People got angry. They shouted. They were ready to kill somebody. They lost their minds. They chanted for two hours straight, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And here's the irony of the story. It's found in the final verses, verse 36 through 40. Well, here's what happens. The city clerk comes into the theater and says to these people, guys, take a second and think about this. You're saying that the Christians are causing chaos in the city. You guys are causing chaos in the city. He says, you say that the Christians are disrupting the social order of Ephesus. You guys, look at what you're doing. This is a riot. You guys are causing social disorder in Ephesus. Look at yourselves. You're overreacting. They haven't even really done anything. If you have a case, take it to the pro-councils. Take it to court. But if not, chill out and go home. But the thing, the thing that they did, see, when their idol was threatened is the same thing that all of us do when our idols are threatened. Again, pull up your uncontrolled emotions by the roots and you will find your idols clinging to them. The things that you're looking to, the things that you're hoping in for things which can only be found in God through Christ. Hope, security, identity, salvation, redemption, value, meaning, purpose. There are two things in closing that, about idolatry that we need to learn from this section. First of all, idolatry is incredibly pervasive. Idolatry is incredibly pervasive. All of us, every one of us, struggles with this. And here's the other thing, though. That idolatry is absolutely empty. Gods of your own creation are no gods at all. They, they have no power to give you the things that you hope that they will give you. They will only leave you always empty and disappointed. And the gospel... The gospel is the answer to all the deepest longings of your heart. Do you realize that Jesus Christ is the one whom your heart has always been longing for and seeking after? In him is found the satisfaction that your heart desires. Nothing can take his place. So I encourage you today 
Turn from empty idols and turn to Jesus, your creator, your sustainer, the only savior, the one who came to take your sins upon himself that you might have life and salvation now and forever. Oh, Jesus, we thank you for the great hope of the gospel. Lord, and we confess that we're, we're not that much different than the Ephesians, Lord, that we too look to other things for, to, to find that which can only be found in you. Lord, thank you for the hope of the gospel, though. Thank you that everything that we do desire in our heart of hearts, Lord, it is ours in you through Jesus Christ because of what he did for us on the cross. Lord, we thank you for your great love for us. We thank you for what you did for us on the cross, Lord, that you gave everything for us. Lord, may we in turn now, in response to that, may we give everything to you. I pray for anybody here, Lord, who is on the fence, who hasn't yet decided where they stand. They haven't put down their yes in following you. Lord, I pray that for them, Jesus, they wouldn't know Jesus only as the Jesus I hear about at church, the Jesus my parents believe in, Jesus my spouse believe in, but Lord, it would be today the Jesus that they believe in, the Jesus whom they follow. Would you do that work in all of us? We pray in Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to Be Set Free, the radio outreach of Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado. We have three in-person services on Sunday mornings at 8, 9.30, and 11 a.m. And our 9.30 and 11 services are live streamed on our website for those who would like to worship with us online. We are located just east of County Line Road and Highway 119 at 2950 Colorful Avenue in Longmont. For more information or to hear other messages from Pastor Nick, visit us online at whitefieldschurch.com. Be Set Free is a listener-supported program. If you have been blessed by this message and would like to support this ministry, you can send a donation via check to 2950 Colorful Avenue, Longmont, Colorado, 80504, or donate online at besetfreeradio.com.